Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven, white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of the more challenging aspects of regulatory compliance, measuring return on investment. One of the most important elements of an effective compliance program, confidential reporting and investigations. And with us today are two subject matter experts on confidential reporting. Carrie Penman, Chief Compliance Officer, Navex Global, and a widely noted compliance luminary. Also joining us is Kyle Welch. Kyle is an assistant professor at George Washington University's School of Business, where he's focused on corporate governance, whistleblowing, institutional investing, and private markets. Carrie and Kyle have collaborated on recent studies on how to measure the return on investment of compliance hotlines. Welcome, Carrie and Kyle, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. So efforts to measure return on investment on compliance expenditures have historically been in terms of the cost savings of disasters averted. During cost-cutting times, such as many organizations are now facing, the CFO will likely be unmoved by disasters averted analyses to measure ROI. Kyle, Navex recently made a sanitized portion of its trove of 3 million hotline alerts available to you to study. And in your white paper on the use and efficacy of internal whistleblowing systems, what did you learn about the linkage between active hotlines and business performance? Yeah, we, so the data we got was anonymized and um, encrypted and secured through Navix and didn't have much as far as details of what was going on. What we did look at was the activity levels within each firm system. And what we found is that firms that have more active systems generally have the attributes that most firms are trying to achieve in general, right? So firms typically with higher, uh, with more active systems have higher quality governance. They have in management that is less entrenched, meaning they don't have poison pills and these other things. They have uh, uh, higher quality earnings reports. So their, their accounting numbers are actually uh, better. Uh, they're usually larger firms, older firms, more profitable firms. And the same thing's true on the, the lower side. Firms with decreased uh, hotline usage uh, are usually firms with lower governance, lower quality governance. Um, they use more discretionary accruals, uh, meaning they you know, p- potentially are p- possibly manipulating earnings a little bit more. Um, they're usually smaller firms and newer firms and firms that are a bit less profitable. And so uh, uh, what we learned overall about the attributes is that it seems like uh, firms that um, have been around a while and have experience with these systems realize that they're valuable and have active use. And so we looked at that and that was the first association that we looked at. And then we cut the data a bunch of other ways. It's really interesting. Carrie, the the study looked at alerts spanning a a 14-year period. What about how the use of hotlines has changed over that time period? That's a great question, Scott. And, and I would say from the standpoint of reporting systems themselves, I haven't really changed a lot, at least the factors that make them effective. But um, you know, one thing I think that has changed and, and what has enabled uh, the research that Kyle has done, I think is probably more focused on automation 
of uh, being able to collect and assess and analyze the data. But the factors I think that haven't changed that need to be in place uh, with regard to an effective program really are, you know, first and foremost, a strong commitment to hearing issues. And I think Kyle's alluded to that already. But separately, I would also add a commitment to protecting confidentiality, you know, commitment to conducting uh, effective investigations, a clear leadership support for a speak up culture. And then one that we don't talk about enough, which is a focus on detecting and uh, preventing retaliation. But I do think one thing in my observations has been changing in the most recent years, and that is without transparency and safety, people are more willing to take their issues outside the organization to regulatory agencies or to outside counsel, uh, or even to just quit the organization because they don't believe you know, in the efficacy of the organization. And so I think more than ever, organizations need to be more nimble in responding to the issues that are raised. Some of this, I think, is being driven by social media, 24-7 news, all of that, that everything is getting out very quickly. And I think organizations really need to ensure that uh, more nimble, I guess, in addressing issues that are raised. And if I could just add maybe just one more point, I, I think that's really very much a concern because last year we saw a median time to close cases of about 45 days. And in this day and age of instantaneous information and data, that's probably too slow. So is there anything in the study that, that surprised either of you? So uh, the person that was most surprised was probably me. Carrie is probably less surprised because she's been around these things uh, much longer and, and doing this work and has much more experience uh, answering reports. But um, one aspect that we looked at after looking at the types of firms that are better and worse um, uh, as far as like quality and, and volume of reporting, finding that, you know, uh, firms with more reports are typically higher quality and a lot of attributes. Um, one key finding that, that is very counterintuitive to what I think a lay theory a lot of people have is, is that more reports is actually better for deterring uh, negative outcomes. So you mentioned earlier, one of the problems is, is that uh, uh, compliance is usually measuring the avoidance of cost. And that, in, in a nutshell, captures the big problem with compliance reporting because a lot of positive things actually come through employee feedback too. It's hard. It's just harder to trace them because you don't have uh, uh, the regulatory fines and lawsuits that come out are identified very clearly when there's failures. But when you know an employee has some sort of feedback that helps helps a company that improves an operation, you don't you don't see it. So uh, our analysis focused primarily on. Uh, uh, seeing some negative outcomes in this aspect. And what we saw was that firms that actually had more report volumes, higher volume of reports, actually had fewer lawsuits and fewer fines. And the amounts of these fines, the difference from the top quintile versus the bottom quintile is pretty material. In looking at just a simple uh, graph that's that, that we put on, um, we're talking uh, several million dollars here uh, in differences in fines. And then when you talk about lawsuits, we're, we focused in particular on material lawsuits, and you, we see a similar pattern um, where uh, firms that have lower reports typically have more of these external problems. And it, and it keys into what Carrie uh, uh, mentioned was is that uh, when people don't feel like their feedback will be heard internally, um, they'll go external. They'll either go to a regulator or if it's problematic enough, they'll, you know, there, there could be a, a lawsuit of some sort. And so uh, 
this is counterintuitive, very counterintuitive, because if you think of the average person on C, I know a lot of people in compliance think, oh yeah, we already knew this, but the reality is, is most managers, senior managers and directors, they don't have this intuition. Um, they, they sometimes think that uh, the more reports you have indicates more problems uh, in the organization. And that kind of logic in lay theory um, is, is as there's no evidence of that. In fact, it's the opposite. seems like most organizations are going to have problems, period. You're never going to have a management team that is uh, so perfect that you don't have problems. The question is, is are you going to be able to see what you're not, not able to see otherwise? Are you going to be able to see what you can't hear uh, from what's going on on the floor? And that's what these, these systems do. And they enable firms to get ahead of these problems and, and solve them. And so the nice thing about actually measuring this, one of these, you know, how active a, a system is based on benchmarking. So you have to look at your organization compared to the peers in your industry for a given year. But if you look at that, it's not just a measure of, of your ability to get ahead of problems. It's also kind of a very good measure or a proxy for uh, just general culture in your organization. Are you actually uh, an organization where employees feel like they can bring things up and talk about things? And so uh, uh, for me, what the, what the first finding that was counterintuitive was more reports are better. And um, I know the average uh, uh, compliance person thinks, oh yeah, we, we kind of felt that way, but that now we have empirical proof of it um, that, that says, that uh, a compliance person, if they're ever talking with a manager that says, "Hey, you've got too high reports, um, you need to bring those down," you can say, "Well, actually, that's not what the that's not what the the empirical results say from from research. Research shows that actually more reports shows that we're a better firm." And the right question to ask is, "Do we have the resources to investigate these these additional information sources?" That's a really uh, you know I think important observation. So, Carrie, you know, following what what Kyle was just sharing with us. If a higher volume of hotline activity is linked to better performance and lower litigation costs, what strategies should organizations deploy to drive hotline traffic so that they can have, you know, the the, the benefit of of this this you know kind of information flow? That, that's a very important question, and um, and I do, by the way, totally agree with Kyle. On, on his assessment. I think most compliance officers were not surprised by this. We were in fact happy to hear it, um, that we had a place to point to and say, yes, that this is important because organizations um, that have people who are comfortable challenging all kinds of things, right? Bad product decisions, marketing decisions, you know, all of that. They're going to be better organizations when they're listening to dissenting uh, opinions. So, you know, in order to drive the, a higher volume of activity, and it doesn't just have to be hotline because, you know, a lot of organizations track reports of all types in their systems. But the key things from my perspective are clear and ongoing communications about the reporting options that employees have. So what are the various avenues that employees have to raise questions or concerns and as I mentioned, you know, recording all of the cases in one system to catch potential problems earlier, you know, to, to me, it might be a one-off, to HR, it might be a one-off, to security and audit, it might be a one-off, and we put them all together, and all of a sudden, you have a pattern or a trend. Um, that's, I think, a very important strategy to deploy, is to be able to um, track reports from multiple sources and to multiple uh, functional teams and, and management teams. And then third, and I think this is perhaps one of the most important things that, that we need to address, and it continues to be a low priority for many compliance programs, 
um, is addressing employee concerns about fear of retaliation. It's something that in my mind is a huge missed opportunity. Uh, we just finished yet again another survey where we asked organizations how you know, preventing and detecting retaliation was, what level of priority it was for their organizations. And you know, for most, uh, it was a pretty low priority. But yet, if you ask any employee what will prevent them from reporting, it's fear of retaliation or fear of some kind of repercussions. And so I think if you really truly want to drive hotline traffic and to get more reports, you have to address the issues that prevent employees from raising them in the first place. And as we said, one is fear of retaliation and the other that Kyle and I were talking about and you commented on Scott was the fact that if it takes too long to address the problem, then they're um, likely to interpret it to mean that the organization doesn't care. So to me, those are the most important strategies to be thinking about. To add uh, to what Carrie says, I think it's really important too, because um, unfortunately, the nature of our of the priors that everyone has about reporting something internally is that it is a vocationally risky endeavor. And uh, and if you look at public press and uh, and the courts, it seems like that's like the case because um, that's all you see when you hear about whistleblowers in the press or people are giving feedback in the press or in the courtrooms. The interesting thing that I found from looking at the data is that management is not actually as bad as depicted in press and in pop. Like, like if the Washington Post had an article, uh, uh, I think it was uh, back in January of this year, they said, why are there more whistleblowers than ever? Because there's more fraud. And this is a really bad logic uh, for these, these kind of systems um, uh, because it, it, it'd be the equivalent of assuming that there's more uh, there were more cases uh, reported of harassment during the Me Too movement because there were more perverts or more people causing, you know, you know, being inappropriate. And the reality is, is we know that's not the case. We just know that they've, that people probably just felt more comfortable speaking up about it. And the same thing's true is, is kind of happening with uh, giving feedback via these systems. And what Carrie says is that in spite of there's a, there's a, an, there's an innate opinion about, what it is to be a reporter, and that is that it is vocationally risky, and it's and it's usually out there because of press and and uh, litigation, and that's how you usually hear about it. And it usually ends up being that those are uh, feedback systems that have failed, and we don't hear much about feedback systems that succeed. And the neat thing about looking at the data that I saw, at least, is that generally speaking reports are taken very seriously. The average report is accessed, I think, like six to seven times over the years that I looked at it, um, which suggests that there's a lot of activity around looking at the reports, not like one and done. And then um, when it comes to retaliation, I think Carrie's absolutely right. I think it's an opportunity to de- to defend employees. And when I talk to compliance officers, if there's nothing that'll kill your system worse than, than having uh, a rumor about uh, retaliation for giving feedback. In one of these systems, and so I think the the wind is at the sails of getting these feedback in these in these systems. It's just a matter of getting employees to understand that managers generally want to have this feedback. They don't want to have a harasser. They don't want to have fraud. They don't want to have these problems in their organizations, and they're looking to fix them. And uh, the more employees feel that way, the more they're going to speak up. A couple of really important points that you guys both raised. I mean, from my own experience, you know, in, in doing internal investigations. 
you know, there's a strange phenomenon that pe- witnesses are much more comfortable sharing information um, that could have blowback to an outside party like me, as opposed to someone that is um, part of their chain of command. Uh, and, you know, I always marvel when I'm interviewing somebody, you know, that's a witness and they're very matter of factly telling me about some horrible things that are happening in their company and, and that they're well aware of. And then I ask the question, the inevitable question, which is, you know, if you've known that this has been going on for so long, why didn't you speak up? They then tell me something that just shuts me right up because it says they, they often the reason is, well, the last time I spoke up, I was retaliated against. And I got right. dem- I got demoted, and I and I got my salary cut, and my performance reviews have been, you know, you know routinely awful. And it, it's so it's a, it's a very real thing. Um, so, and the other thing that that um, you, you guys both mentioned that I, I want to kind of explore a little further is you know the the importance of you know understanding that not all of this stuff comes through the hotline. It comes through a whole variety of channels by design. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you know. Um, you know, not every organization sort of maintains a central repository of that information. And, and from my perspective, that's a, you know, that could be a missed opportunity because, you know, it's, it's much harder to connect the dots. Um, yep. uh, and yet, you know, there are times when, you know, you know, we're out there advising people on their compliance programs and their investigative uh, frameworks. And we're, su- we suggest, bringing those things together, that's met with pushback. Um, so what are some of the challenges that organizations have in bringing those systems together? You know, conversely, what are some of the challenges for those that don't? I'll start with the bringing them together. Um, and I think that the problem is silos in the organizations. You know, for a variety of reasons, there are various groups that don't want other groups to see their data or have access to their data. And there's some good reasons for that, right? We don't, uh, a lot of people having access to, you know, allegations against individuals, especially if they are, you know, unproven at that point, that it can, you know, taint the individual. But I think it's incredibly important to be gathering at least, uh, you know, specifics about, you know, the location, the type of issue, perhaps the, you know, whether or not it's been founded, but to aggregate the data in such a way that, um, you know, as I said earlier, for, for each separate organization, you know, it may be a, a one-off, but all reports matter to the organization and patterns of reporting tell a story. And if we don't gather those patterns of reporting, then we're likely to, to miss um, the value that you can get from some level of aggregating the data. And so there are definitely ways to set up a central repository where the departments who are responsible for managing that investigation are the ones that have access to the specific details. But at some level of the organization, whether it's a risk compliance officer, auditor, you know, whoever, that need to be able to look at an aggregate set of data across the entire organization of the types of issues that have been reported and what the outcome and the disposition of those have been. And, um, I mean, it's necessary for management to run a business to have access to that kind of data. And so I think it's really important to, you know, break down the barriers between functional groups and find a way to aggregate data to make it more effective for the organization. A lot of this activity is 
you know, an outgrowth from your ethics and compliance program. Um, it just seems just stand to reason why, you know, these whole, these frameworks are intended to break down silos uh, and, and to harness, you know, the, the collective information uh, available to the organization so that they can, you know, be as good as possible at issue spotting and, and getting out ahead of things. And, I, you know, I always just strikes me as so stopping at the five yard line if you don't bring you know, these different information systems together around issues like, you know, allegations that are being brought forward. It undermines all of the other good work that's being done. Absolutely. And I would say that it's really up to the CEO to knock down those barriers and to say political fiefdoms uh, have to be set aside. We need the data. Uh, And that's, that's really the only way it's going to work if that's a challenge in the organization that somebody higher up has to say, I want to see it all in one place. Um, to that point, so you asked an earlier question, uh, what did we find uh, uh, interesting or like counterintuitive in it? And there were two findings that we found very counterintuitive. Uh, a lot of the analysis we did was uh, kind of at the meta level where uh, overall reports and differences between firms and differences in types of reports. And one of the things we noticed that um, we couldn't figure out what was going on was when we, we looked at the types of reports, um, if, if you were to ask the average person which t- type of internal report is more useful, one with more details provided or one with fewer, most would say the one with more details is more valuable. And when we run our regressions uh, and, and looking at the data, it turned out that uh, firms that were getting smaller reports uh, as far as the d- amount of blanks that were f- filled out. So we didn't get any text from Navex, but we asked them, um, how many of the fields were left blank in certain reports. And uh, what we found was is that a lot of times we think about co- these systems as, as being anonymous, uh, as giving the ab- person the ability to just say, hey, I want to be anonymous when I call in. But there's an, another form, it seems, that, that anonymity comes into the systems that, is, that might not be so obvious. And that is somebody might see something and submit a report and, and it was through talking to Carrie and others that, I, that we discovered what was going on. Turns out there's a fair amount of people that will want to give information, but don't want to fill out a form. And so they'll give a name, they'll say that they have some information. And then when you go to meet them and talk with them and build a relationship of trust with them, then they dish and they give you everything. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of value in, in getting that. And so when it comes to the data, what you don't want to do is to have anything that stifles, it seems, uh, the type or amounts or what type of report uh, comes in. I, I have talked to other people um, and they sometimes ask me the question, well, how can we make sure that we don't get bad reports? And I said, well, the only bad reports you get are the ones that you don't see because those are the ones where the employees leave or they tell the regulator Um, or a lawsuit happens. Those are the worst kind of reports. And what you want to do is be able to have a system that takes an education of, you know, the system so that you don't have employees reporting concerns about their thermostat in the system, but uh, that you have employees that feel comfortable if they have a, a, like a one-off question that they may have seen something, but they don't know if it's wrong or bad, but they can reach out and talk to someone. Because what we found is that even the reports that have a little information seem to be super valuable to organizations which is kind of counterintuitive from a management standpoint. You would think that if you were going to start on, on your investigation and you have limited resources to allocate to investigating, 
you'd start with the ones with longer details, but it turns out some of these shorter detailed reports are actually some of the most valuable ones that you could get. Since the pandemic, um, you know, th there's been, you know, um, a, a notable uptick in, in COVID-19 related fraud. Uh, and you know, in recent weeks, the SEC reported a 35% increase in the hotline tips that they're receiving alleging accounting fraud since mid-March. Um, what can be gleaned from what you guys are seeing at NAVEC so far in terms of alerts that have come through, you know, since, you know, that mid-March time period? Yeah, and Scott, you know, we when we saw that article about the 35% increase in reports to the SEC, we, we ran the data to take a look to see if we as well were seeing that because, Frankly, our initial response was that we were seeing just a whole host of environment, health, and safety issues that were being reported. People concerned about their workplace, concerned about their coworkers, concerned that they don't have enough PPE, et cetera. And we hadn't really focused on the other types of reporting. And so, in fact, when we ran that data, we found about a 25% increase in April and May of reports of accounting, auditing, and financial reporting. And, um, and while we don't get a lot of those reports, you know, overall percentage wise, uh, it was still a 25% increase in that reporting. And I think it's really important to recognize that this makes a lot of sense because organizations are now entering a very high risk environment for employees that are going to be experiencing a lot more pressure to meet what might now be unrealistic objectives or targets at this point, given what's happened in the economy. And uh, I think that, you know, we're heading into a period where people are going to have to make a choice or think they have to make a choice between doing the right thing and meeting an objective. And that's the one reason why we can't take our foot off the gas about ensuring that we are receiving these reports and that we are receiving them quickly and early on when they're happening so that we have an opportunity to address them. But yeah, I was. I, that's one thing I was surprised to see was that we, in, we in fact, as well, had seen a, an increase in accounting reports. Um, the increase in the safety reports doubled. You know, that was the biggest increase. But we did see a, a significant increase in accounting reports, and I suspect that will continue as folks uh, continue to try to um, adjust to whatever this new normal is and what business is going to be. One of the underpinnings of. Of, of the investigation of fraud is Cressy's fraud triangle, which is, you know, sort of opportunity, rationalization, and pressure. And I, I think there, you know, all three of those elements are, are um, you know, kind of intensifying. So, you know, you, you have to figure that the incidence of fraud is going to climb uh, based on that. People are in positions of trust. They're perhaps concerned about their their job, and and just that concern um, alone could provide the rationalization. You know, like you know, and it, you know the the rationalization becomes desperation. Um, you know, because people are in a you know many people are in a in a tough tough position. Yeah, so, and I think one point about the SEC. You know, people are going in this situation. It seems like people are going just straight to the SEC, and that's something that. Uh, you know, organizations who may be, you know, back to Kyle's research, maybe seeing a decrease in reporting right now, they need to be concerned about the lack of, of contact with employees on these types of issues, because obviously um, a lot of these reports are now going straight to the SEC. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a missed opportunity. 
Um, so what, one thing I'd, I'll say, and, and the, my academic training causes me to always question all angles on this, is I don't know that we should jump possibly to, it could very well be the fact that we're not around more people, but there's more, there is opportunity for, for more fraud. There could also be the situation that we saw with Me Too, where the, the fact that you're no longer at work, that you might be on furlough with your job at risk, you might be more willing to actually report something that happened before this. And so it could either be, it. I don't know that it's played out. We don't, I don't know that we know which one it is. It could very right. well be concurrent fraud and it could be a cumulative uh, uh, financial reporting fraud that has that is basically all bubbling up at once because once you're on furlough and you might, you might be looking at the news wondering, hey, am I ever gonna have a job? Uh, well, I know I can actually, you know, report this and maybe make some money from the SEC. Uh, and as, as a result, they have an uptick in, in the type of reports to try to try to do that. I'm interested to find out which one it is. Well, you, you, you're absolutely right. You're kind of scratching that, uh, you know, um, that whole concept of this, you know, complete paradigm shift of, of the, you know, the, the workforce social dynamic you know, with so many people working remotely. So yeah, that's, uh, uh, that, I think that's one we're going to have to stay tuned for. So, so, so that's all the time we have today. You've both shared some really valuable information with us and we thank you very much for your time. Uh, so that was NAVEX Global's Chief Compliance Officer, Carrie Penman, and George Washington University Business School Assistant Professor, Kyle Welch. This concludes this episode of Fraud Risk Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Forensic and Litigation Consulting Practice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy when we'll hear from Chuck DeRoss, former chief of the DOJ Fraud Section and current leader of Morrison Foster's FCPA and Global Anti-Corruption Practice, talking to us about the importance of seeing your compliance program through the government's eyes. If you have an idea on fraud, or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear from on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>